Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. 
And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Anaheim, California, which is a whole lot more than Disneyland, trust me. It's Roger Dow, President and CEO of the U.S. Travel Association, the 51st Annual International Powwow, IPW, which we'll explain in a second. I've been coming to many of them. We actually broadcast from the IPW last year in Denver. And the year before that, I believe it was in Washington, Washington D.C. for the first time. That's right. And here it is in Anaheim at the convention center. Roger, I want to start off by just posing a, a just a theory here that when you ask people what is a foreign export, they'll tell you well, steel, okay, or automobiles, or corn, wheat, um, uh, textiles. I mean, you, you can go through the whole list of what the United States exports, but people never put travel on that list. And travel is a huge foreign export. Yeah, an export is anytime someone from outside the company, outside our country, buys an American product. And travel is an American product. So when people come from Germany or China, Japan, Australia to visit here, it's the same as them buying a computer or buying one of our our farm goods. Uh, so it's an export. It's a big export. Two hundred and fifty billion dollars a year. And you know, this is, and not to mention the jobs it creates, which we'll get to in a second, but you've had a, a challenge since the day of the USTA's beginning to educate legislators, to educate policymakers, to educate municipal and state governments, and now to educate the public as to the power of travel and tourism and how it relates to their lives. Now more than ever, I would suspect, with trade wars starting and tariffs being implemented, which most people don't understand or don't know where the money's going or where it comes from, a tariff you know, impacts the price of steel, it impacts the price of an avocado, it impacts the price of a car, it impacts the price and the cost of travel. Exactly. And it's, uh, and when you ever get into these trade wars and these discussions, uh, we say travel is trade. And the challenge we have is there's unintended consequences that bleed over beyond steel, beyond aluminum, beyond agriculture products to things like travel. And, you know, if, if President Trump, uh, he's already basically in a trade war with, with, with China. He's, he's uh, on the verge of one again with Mexico. But we've seen uh, already a, a drop in foreign arrivals for the last two years anyway, m mostly from Europe. Now it's coming from Asia. Yeah, what's happening is uh, not only China, but South Korea are both softening. Uh, and we enjoy 3.2 million visitors from China who are the largest spenders. So when... Oh, by the way, when you mentioned largest spenders, I'm going to stagger. I mean, you know the answer to this, but I, I stagger my friends with it all the time. An American on a week-long vacation might spend 1500 bucks, right. maybe 2000 What do the Chinese spend in a week? Uh, the average international traveler spends $4,400. The average Chinese spends over seven thousand per person per trip. That so now let's. You don't have to be a math wizard, by the way. I'm not to run the numbers to realize how staggering this is if you don't have it. Well, when you look at the talk about trade uh, and trade deficits and trade surplus, uh, we've got a sixty-nine billion dollar travel trade surplus, meaning more people outside the United States spend money here than Americans spend there. And, and we it, want that. We want that. And, and to China, a $31 billion trade surplus. So half of our trade surplus in travel comes from China. So the minute you start messing with the gods on other products and services, the reaction is almost inevitable. It's re reciprocity. We saw that happen uh, when uh, several years ago, China was in a tiff uh, with South Korea, and they put out the word, don't go to South Korea. 
The next day, no one went to South Korea. And then? And then <laughs> the, the billions it cost. And the bottom line is our big concern. Now, both, both governments see the tremendous value from travel back and forth. So we're hoping we don't get caught up in this. But as I say, there's unintended consequences when I these think things we, get started. I think we already caught up in it because the number of Chinese to the United States is dropping. We are seeing that. We're seeing drop in business travel, uh, major drop in government travel of government officials from China coming, and also in meetings and conventions, people uh, coming from China. So we're starting to see it there. Leisure's still holding its own, but uh, those areas. You know, it's interesting to look at it another way, and most people don't connect these dots. I'm beginning to. When the Chinese, and I'm not singling them out, but just to use them as an example here, when they travel to Honolulu, Los Angeles, New York, large international gateway cities, they're on a shopping spree. I, I know this for a fact because when I'm in Europe and I buy a product where I, I'm not going to get my value-added tax back, I have to go stand in a line at customs before I board my flight. That line is as long as Brazil, and I'm the only person who's not Chinese in that line. They have bought everything. And now I take a look at, if you took a walk with me, and, and I'm not saying this is a direct relationship, but I think there is a relationship here. If you take a walk with me from 59th Street on Madison Avenue up to 86th Street on Madison Avenue in New York, every third store is vacant. It's the death of retail. But those stores are flagship stores of name brands that didn't exist for the locals in New York to buy. They really existed for the visitors to buy. I had, uh, that I will not mention the name, but one of the largest upscale stores in New York tell me without the visitors from outside the United States, he'd have to close his doors. 55% of all his profits come from visitors. Right. So everybody's in on this, except they don't know they're in on it. Right. Right? Exactly. So what's the solution? Uh, the solution is uh, many things. It, to really increase the number of visas uh, that we have, the number of people we interview, uh, to get more technology, and to we've got to get the word across. We've shared this with the president. We're all for security. Without security, there is no travel. But we also have to have a welcoming message. The, the president should be stepping forward, as everyone should be saying, no bad guys, but we want all the good guys here. Right, but... That message isn't being said. It's not being said. And uh, we try as an industry to say that as much as we can. That's what we're doing here at IPW. But the bottom line, it could be a tremendous boon to jobs, to our economy, just with that simple message. And now let's talk about IPW because you see it here up close and personal. You have 6,000 plus people here. Right? These are buyers. We have 6,000 people from 70 countries around the world. We'll do 110,000 20-minute appointments, and the next three days they'll contract or negotiate about $5 billion of future travel to the United States. To the United States? To the United States. This isn't about Mrs. Schmidlap going to France. France. No, no, this no. Right. This is they're sitting down uh, tomorrow on these days with Disney and saying, I'm from Germany. What if I buy 10,000 tickets next year? They're sitting down with Marietta or Hilton saying, I want 50 rooms a night in the following cities every single night. So obviously we still want them and we're still catering to them. But is it a buyer's market now for them? It, it is. It's beginning uh, part of that. And the other thing that no one thinks about is it's our stealth public diplomacy. We've done all sorts of research. When people come to the United States, they return home 75 percent positive about America, American policy. Those that aren't are about 20 percent. So it, what better way to build our standing around the world and have more people come here? Right. And the 20 percent that didn't have a good time, they were caught in a speed trap in rural Georgia. I think that was it. <laughs> by the same cop in the same small town yes. with the same crooked judge. I got it. Uh, so when you're talking to legislators, when you're talking to congressmen and senators, congresswomen and senators, uh, what message are you telling them, and are they getting it? 
Uh, some get it. Uh, the message I'm telling them, this is how you employ people. Uh, of all the jobs that were created, and a lot of talk about created jobs and low unemployment, of all the jobs that were created last year, 20, almost 25% were created by the travel industry, and we're only 3% of the GDP. So we're creating jobs at eight times the size of the industry. And, of course, if you look at the, at the World Travel and Tourism Council statistics, they will tell you that travel and tourism is somewhere, on an average, of about nearly 11% of yeah. global GDP. Right. That's staggering. And it's huge. And, and yet that doesn't even count uh, if you take transportation, the huge part of the GDP. Uh, what do you think is in transportation? All those Boeing planes. So if it's really, it goes way beyond just, I just talked about travel being uh, $2.5 trillion. But think about the Boeing planes. Think about the other things we don't even think about with travel. Well, interesting you mentioned that because if you look at every American president since Kennedy, they were de facto ambassadors for Boeing because they're our biggest exporter. Right? I mean, okay. those planes are a lot of money. Well, absolutely. And when there were trade missions going overseas and the president was part of that in many cases, their biggest flag that they were flying was by Boeing. There's no question about it. I know. And, and what's interesting now is it wasn't just particular to, to Obama or, or, uh, or, 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 or Clinton or anybody. It was every president. And then when the U.S. airlines were screaming and yelling about our trade deal with Iran or they were screaming and yelling about, about Qatar— to Trump, Trump's response was, yeah, but they buy a lot of Boeing airplanes. Well, and the bottom line is, you talk about all the presidents and folks pushing Boeing planes. If they push travel, it's much bigger, much bigger by a factor of many than Boeing. Uh, and it's, it's and so it's easy, easier because everything's built. All the hotels, the airports, they're all built. Right, but what you're talking about is, is a concept versus a product. Yeah. And, and that's what people can't get their, literally mm -hmm. can't get their arms around. Right. All right, let's go from trade tariffs to, to real pocketbook issues here. What I've seen this year, which is sort of refreshing, is airfares have not spiked. Um, in fact, in many cases, they've gone down. Do you see that continuing, Roger? I think we're going to see it continue. Uh, what keeps me up at night is thinking about on these trade wars, if we begin seeing fewer people coming from outside the United States, whether it be China, Mexico, places like that. Uh, we've, in the hotel business and travel business, had 120 straight months of growth, 120 straight months. Things don't go on forever. So my concern is I think you're going to see a flattening, uh, which is going to be more available rooms, which leads to prices going down. So I think probably you're, you're not going to see big price increases, probably flat and maybe in some cases some more bargains. You know, you talk about 120 months of straight growth. Let's add this number in. Hilton is opening up one new hotel a day, mm -hmm. uh, not just in this country, but worldwide. Marriott's opening up one new hotel every 14 hours. It's staggering. So, the, so when you're opening at that rate, there might be in the short term a lot of owners that are happy because they now can have a Marriott flagged hotel or a Hilton flagged hotel, but now you got to fill the rooms. And that's a lot of rooms to fill. So if you're looking at, at, a, at a hotel occupancy anywhere above 68%, which for many hotels is their break even, um, you start coming down from that, you got problems. You have consolidation. Yeah, I think what's happening. You're you're seeing that growth, and uh, all everyone did their uh, planning and uh, their performance at the same time three years ago, and said, "Wow, there's a great opportunity. Let's build this hotel." And I, I think you're going to see a lot of hotels open as a market is perhaps flattening out or going the other way. Which brings up the other question that I keep asking. Are companies like Hilton and Marriott hotel companies or are they real estate developers? Because I, I don't understand the business model anymore. The, most people think that a Hilton hotel is owned by Hilton. It's not. No. They have equity in maybe three or four of their hotels, and they've got four or 5,000 hotels. Marriott's got over 7,000, of which they might have equity in 10 of them. 
That's not really their business. Their business is to build hotels for someone else that then let them manage it, and they get a percentage of that. Right. No, it's, they're basically a management company and a real estate company. And more of these days of a real estate company, yeah. I would think. And now Marriott's saying they're going to go head-to-head with Airbnb. It's very interesting because uh, you, you watch the hotel industry uh, be extraordinarily opposed to Airbnb, but yet now we're starting to see them one by one thinking about opening their own version of Airbnb with the promise of better quality, uh, better controls. Well, people like that idea, but you have to understand, which is another staggering figure, that Airbnb now controls 8% of the global room inventory. That's a lot of rooms. I was talking to the head of Puerto Rico, and he was telling me they, uh, the, the big comeback they're having, which is right. great. Uh, but they had 11,000 hotel rooms, and they, uh, a couple of years ago they had 2,000 Airbnb rooms. They now have 6,000 Airbnb rooms. Because so people need to make of, some money. factor of three, right. Airbnb has grown, and it's the way people are making money. It's, exactly. You know, and, and I, don't think they can, I don't think governments are, are going to do very well at controlling them unless they're, all the Airbnbs are in one high-rise building. Then they can go after the owners. But if you have 6,000 individual Airbnbs in San Juan or throughout Puerto Rico, how do you police that? You don't. No, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. And, it, and it's been a game changer. It's the same as Uber, Lyft, whatever. It's been a game changer. And I, I think an industry has looked at it and said, you know, if we fight them enough, they'll go away. Uh, they're not going away. I know. And then there's the other issue that we, about how people make their room reservations. Uh, the online travel agencies, the OTAs, basically came into play because hotels were in, in trouble financially, and the OTAs came to them, the Expedias, the Travelocities, the Orbitzes, and said, hey, look, let us sell your unsold rooms. We'll make a little markup here, but at least you'll get something. And the hotels said, okay. And before the hotels knew it, they were selling all their rooms. And the owners of those hotels would go back to these management companies like Hilton and Marriott and say, wait a minute, you have a website. Why can't, why can't people book with you, and why do we have to pay up to 30% commission to these OTAs. And that's when Hilton started that campaign, stop clicking around and blah, blah, blah. I don't know if it's had an impact. Well, I think the challenge is the, the horse is way out of the barn. And uh, the traveling public has been trained to go to an OTA and look at all possibilities. And if you look at their commercials versus just one brand. And so the public is saying it might be quicker and easier that way. Plus, if you take a look at what Hilton's trying to do, they'll say, if you go to our website, we'll give you a free bottle of water. We won't charge you for the Wi-Fi. I mean, they're giving people things that can actually have a tangible value to them, but not everybody's going to get that message right away because they've been trained, as you said, Roger, to just go online to the OTAs. Yeah, and, and distribution is king. Whoever has distribution controls the industry. Which means, again, uh, hotel prices, or at least hotel profits, may be going down if they can't get that piece of the pie. Right. So what's the answer? Consolidation? Well, if you look at, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of consolidation going on. You talk about Marriott, Hilton, Chains, buying Chains. Uh, what I look at now is the number of brands. Uh, Marriott has 32 brands right now. Hilton's approaching 20. And, and know, by how, the way, I challenge anybody. Between them. And I challenge anybody listening to the show, unless you happen to work for Marriott, to name those 32 brands. Yeah. You can't do it. I, mean, I was at a meeting once of travel industry professionals, and I asked them, this is about the time that Marriott bought Starwood. I said, okay, who here can, can name all the brands at Marriott? And one person raised their hand. I said, and who might you work for? He said, Marriott. I said, okay, fine. Go ahead, name them. And he did, and got applause. Wait, we're not done yet. Now can you differentiate? be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. 
And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. Joining me now is uh, one of our regulars on the show. Uh, I know him as Johnny Descala, but you know him as Johnny Jet. Um, and every time we have him on the show, we talk about websites you've never heard about, applications you need to have, and every once in a while, websites you don't want to hear about and applications you never want to have when it comes to travel. So, Johnny, welcome back. Thank you for having me. What's on your list today? Well, you know, when I travel, is usually the one time I use my alarm. I try not to use my alarm at home because I'm always... But you use your alarm on your, on your iPhone, right? I do, but it, when, I, when I wake up to that alarm, my heart just starts beating really fast. It's just so rude and abrupt. So there's so What a, do you have now? Somebody whispering? What? This one's called Dawn Chorus, D-A-W-N Chorus. And it's developed by the Carnegie, Carnegie Museum of Natural History and Innovation Studios. And what they do is they give you... 20 northeastern birds to choose from. And actually, you can choose up to five, and it sings a little song. The, and, you, and you wake See, up you know, to birds. I want to wake up. I want a bird that's, that's you know, I don't, I don't want a bird going, good morning, good morning. I'll never get up. No, no. Well, this is just really light and smooth. Actually, I, I, Which I, bird I, did you pick? Well, I have, there's a blue, there's actually a blue jay, which is not that great of a sound, but there's a Baltimore Oriole. Uh-huh. Um, can you hear that? That's going to wake you up? How about that one? <laughs> Are you serious? Yes. But this as, is, as a backup, is, hold on, hold on. I, I, this is the app you came to me with? Today? Yes, Dawn Chorus. It's very, it's popular, it's free, and you can always set your backup on your iPhone or Android, whatever you have. That way, to make sure this one See, what gets me up, up is not a little Blue Jay, it's Godzilla. <laughs> well, my dad is legally deaf, and I got him an alarm called the Atomic Bomb. And it vibrates. Oh, it vibrates underneath his pillow. The whole bed shakes. I mean, that is something. Wait that, a minute. I want that. Yeah. It's like $20. I bought it on Amazon. It's called Atomic Bomb? I think it's called the Atomic Bomb Alarm. It's been a couple of years. Wow. Actually, I'll give you his because he doesn't even use it. I'll take it. Okay. And you just hook it up to your phone and you and you set you set the alarm via your phone. You're never going to oversleep that one. You'll never oversleep that one for You'll sure. You'll be cowering under the covers. No. That's okay. it's an amazing one. All right. So that's one. Okay. How about New York City? They have 3,600 link New York City. You know those digital signs that, you know, been in the news because homeless people are watching porn on them or, or charging their phones and things like that. Yeah. Well, there's a new yeah, app. Like at, like at bus stops and stuff like that. No, it's just right on the, right on the streets of New York City. That's what I'm have, saying, those little bus stations. Yeah, they have yeah. Those, yeah. Uh, and so anyway, there's a new app called Shoutable. Shoutable. And what you can do is you can post a message on there for once for one minute. I did it a couple weeks ago when I was in New York with my wife. Freaked her out. It said, hey, Natalie, you rock. Love Jack, our son. She's like, how'd you do that? Anyway. What, what is this, override the system? What no, it, they, they developed it with it, I guess, to make some money. Because the first one's free, and then it's four ninety five per shoutable. And That's expensive. How long does it last on the sign? 60 seconds. Oh, so it's long enough for you to take a stupid picture. Exactly. Thank you. But okay. it's brilliant. I mean, it actually is a really great way to... Does it, wait, does it for, censor you? Well, it won't let you put all crazy stuff. Yeah, it has to censor you somehow. I didn't, I didn't try but to What put, if you want to slander somebody? Well, I will, you can do it. I, I think you can do that. <laughs> you can do it. I, I didn't try, but I assume you can do it because you can put in, uh, you know, whatever Yeah, they're shoutable want. followed by the lawyers with actionable. <laughs> But if you want to propose to someone in New York City, say, by the way, turn around, and you can say, will you marry me? You can say, happy birthday, happy anniversary. It's a great little um, trick to freak out And did out you subscribe friends. to this? 
I, yeah, it's a, free, it's a free app. You download it. You get the first one is free. Then it's four ninety five each. Actually, four ninety five for five of them. So it's really a dollar a person a piece. Wow. So you're going all over New York, freaking people out. You can, yeah. And and so when you when you download it on the app, it shows you the, you know your your location, and you have to choose which one. And you know there's so many. There's one on each side of the block. I wasn't sure if it was. Can the I one. do the big, the big one on Times Square? No, no. That's going to cost you. Um, put a few zeros behind that okay, one. Okay, fine. You probably can, but yeah, we'd be like four zeros. I got you. <laughs> um, we got time for more? Yeah, one more. Go ahead. All right. So actually, this is not an app. This is a website. So LAX, which is one of my favorite airports. I don't know how you feel about it. Why is that one of your favorite airports? I just, because I, first of all, I live 10 minutes away from it. I know it inside and out. Well, I know it inside and out too, but come on. But the traffic is driving me nuts. But this is why you want to follow their new handle. It's called F Fly LAX Airport. You follow them on Twitter, and then every 15 minutes, they'll tell you live updates of all the security lines, the traffic, ups, up, arrivals and departures. So you always want to go to arrivals usually because it's all. Oh, no. You always you want to beat them. You completely reverse the process. You go, you go to arrivals. When you take off, you go to arrivals. Absolutely. Yeah. Even, yeah. Even when you're Especially landing. in the morning. Especially in the morning. Anytime. It's, and I, and I, I watch it because now I get these tweets every 15 minutes. And it's almost always 40 minutes for departures and usually 15 minutes for Arrivals. Yeah, but there's something else here, and let's talk about it. Okay. You're talking about they're going to give you the app that updates the security lines at the TSA? Well, no, this is not an app. This is th their Twitter handle. It's a new Twitter well, handle. But whatever it is, they're updating it, right? Right. Okay. Here's the problem. Who's their source of information? It's the TSA. Uh, no, this is not the TSA. They're actually using a software, which I have written down. Um, I'll have, you know, I don't have it right in front of me. All right, but here's the deal. I don't trust that app, and I'll tell you why. By the time they update it, I'm still in the longest line at LAX. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. Let me set the stage for you. It's the middle of the summer. More people are traveling through airports this summer than ever before. Uh, the TSA has dispatched a number of their agents to the southern border, which means the lines are going to get longer and not any more pleasant. Uh, a lot of airports, even though the airlines are adding 111,000 more seats a day to handle the load, that doesn't mean the airports can handle it. And uh, that brings me to my next guest. She is the, uh, the co-founder and chairman and CEO of Clear, Karen Becker. Karen Simon Becker, how are you? Good morning. Thank you. I go back to when, when Clear first started. Uh, and I was one of the original, you know, TSA pre-check guys um, and, you know, thought it was a great idea. Still do. Uh, and then all of a sudden, Clear pops up as a private enterprise trying to essentially do what, what TSA was doing as well. Uh, and But you weren't in as many airports. Uh, it was a problem because the TSA, at least from what I understood, didn't want you there. They really weren't happy that Clear was there to begin with, at least in the early days. And and then then all of a sudden, it got crazy at the airports because the TSA pre-check, while it's a great idea, the TSA, they're not business folks. They're not private sector. They're not entrepreneurial. And not enough people signed up for it as far as they were concerned. So what were they doing? They were then trying to get people who had no idea why they were being taken out of line, put in the TSA pre-check line. These people thought they'd done something wrong. They had no idea why they were doing it because TSA wanted them to sample pre-check. These are the people who had things in their pockets since 1947. They were not helping the line, right? And then all of a sudden, Clear came back. Uh, you, you expanded to more airports. Next thing you know, you became a viable alternative. And, uh, and I had never been a member of Clear. Because I figure, hey, I'm a original pre-check. I'm I'm a I'm a styling guy, and then 
I was able. I was asked if I wanted to sample it. I said okay, and guess what? I was. At, I'll give you the most recent example. I was at the airport in Denver the other day, and the line on pre-check was out to Brazil, and I said, and I looked at Clear, and there was no line. I said, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to try it as I become a member, and boom, they, they they did the biometrics of my eyes, and they walked me right through. I said, this works, so walk me through if you can the evolution of Clear because at one point. I mean, when you came in, Karen, they were in bankruptcy. <laughs> yes. So, you know, you raise a lot of great points, and I'm so excited that you're a member and you're now experiencing it. But in fairness, CLEAR wouldn't be here without Congress and TSA talking about public-private partnership. And CLEAR was around before uh, because it was an answer to, from Congress to 9-11 and, and bringing innovation through the private sector to really help both security and the customer experience. And biometrics is the unique bridge between making things safer and making things easier. I started years ago when people would be like, what's biometrics and why are you doing this? I said, it's the ATM of identity. You know, you can put multiple ATM machines in one bank teller and that scales securely and a better customer experience. And so we brought the company back in 2010 and you're right. It took us seven years to get to the first million members, 11 and a half months to get to the next million, eight and a half months to get to the next million. And you now have how many? Uh, we're closing in on 4 million members. Wow. And and the fact is that these are also uh, individuals who represent 15 to 20 flight segments a year annually. So you're talking about not just, you know, 4 million members, but they're representing 60 and 80 million flight segments. So it's a percentage you of the total population. Travel. We have frequent travelers. And um, what's been incredible is, quite frankly, pre-check was a great step forward by TSA, just like global entry from CBP, using innovation and really starting to think about security in a in a different way, risk-based security. And so Clear is not an alternative. It's integrated and it's making the customer experience even more secure because now you're putting people in who are getting different screening and you can definitively verify their identity. But the other important point about Clear that you're really starting to see, and I think the reason why we were, I was mapping this out yesterday, it took us six years to get to 12 airports. We're now at 30 and we'll end this year at over 35. And those are mostly Category X airports. And then what, what is a Category X airport? Uh, a Category X airport is an airport that is, we say, in the top 30 or 40 airports of the U.S., which have a disproportionate amount. You might know the percentages better than me, <laughs> but I think it's like 75 to 80 percent of the traffic goes through about the top 40 airports. By the way, the definition of a great airport is the one you don't remember. <laughs> I just thought I'd mention that. But let me ask you a question. Airports are better than ever. Well, you and I can have a long talk about that. They, well, everything being relative, yes, they are. They have still have a long way to go. But let's take a look at LaGuardia, for example. Okay, okay? yes. Here they are rebuilding LaGuardia on the same footprint because they can't expand it. I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah. And is it a convenient airport to New Yorkers? You bet. When they finish this project, right, in 2021, by the time they finish it, it'll be a brand new, gleaming, congested airport. So, look, that is accurate, and that is the issue. I'm a little obsessed with airports. In this day and age, so a little story I was just sharing, I think there were 70 million people who watched MASH on the last night, and right. now people talk about Game of Thrones at 20 million, right? The world has fragmented. Airports today have to be 2.75 million-plus people are going through essentially these top 40 airports every single day. It is the place where people congregate. And you're right. right. If you add a few percentage to travel, it's seven and a half million individuals coming through airports and the same real estate. So innovation has to be a number one solution to drive traffic through 
safer within the same footprint and easier innovation not, not just biometrics but innovation across the board has to be a number one solution to make it safer and easier you can't have thousands of people congregating in any one area that is not safe you have to keep traffic flowing and tra- and travel's never been easier because you know there's airbnb there's your cell phone you could book a trip from here to california with a place to stay and a show to watch and how to get there in less than five minutes i remember the days of eastern airlines my mom would be on the phone for hours although trips. I'm, I'm a big fan of the middle ground you're right you can book all that stuff in in, in the span of about four minutes with one problem Traveling. you're not no you're not having a conversation with anybody well i'm a big fan of the conversation like we're having right now yes which is why we have 1800 ambassadors today at the airport to bring technology to life i think you're exactly right yeah. we need to use people to bring the customer experience to life along with innovation you can't just automate the whole thing and and have you know right nobody Every, there anytime a hotel tells me or an airline tells me they've added more kiosks to the airport I try to go to another hotel because because they take away my opportunity to talk to somebody. I agree, but I think technology and people yes. are really the sweet solution because it has to bring it to life again in the world of privacy and driving trust and data security. You need people to explain to you what you're doing and what you're partaking in and what it means and what's done with your data. So we, you know, as much as people love our technology, they tell us what they love more are our people. Oh, absolutely. Because look, when I was at Denver the other day, it wasn't just going up to the machine and have my eyes read. Somebody literally talked to me and then walked me to the front of the line, of yep. which, by the way, there was no line. Yay. But you not you talk about a private-public partnership between CLEAR and TSA. I happen to think you guys win by default because when the TSA is closing checkpoints, when the TSA is not, TSA is not properly staffing those checkpoints, you win because you're open. Um, I think travelers win. Yeah. And that's a really important point, which is we're obsessed with the traveler experience and the customer experience. As, as we talked about when I came in here this morning, I'm a scared flyer and I fly a lot. And so the stress of flying, of leaving my family, the stress of traveling with my family. Uh, right well, then I have a new program for you. It's called Sedated. <laughs> <laughs> you have clear and you have sedated. Well, I'll give you the sedated line. Right? Um, so I think that making travel easier and safer and working in partnership with the government is is never been more important and there's never been a bigger opportunity. It, it's an exciting moment in travel and innovation. Is there an airport you want to get into right now that you haven't gotten into? Oh yes. Like? Um well, come on. Newark, Chicago, San Diego, Tampa, Oakland. Uh, we'd like to expand at Miami and DFW. Unfortunately, we're not ubiquitous in those airports, which those travelers find unacceptable. We're ubiquitous now in Fort Lauderdale, and it's incredible. You've always been in Orlando. Yes, we love Orlando. We would, Clear would not be in business without Orlando. The Orlando airport, under that leadership, uh, cared about innovation and the customer experience and security and partnership, and they put us into business. The thing that, that turned me around on Clear was Orlando because I wasn't there to see Mickey. <laughs> okay, I wasn't there to see Mickey, and everybody else was, but by going through Clear, I bypassed that. The largest percentage of first-time travelers are at the Orlando airport. Really? And interesting. If you didn't know that, that's exciting that yeah. I well, thank you for you a sharing. statistic. Absolutely. But one of the things that's important for everybody listening to the show is, you know, it's one thing if you want to join TSA PreCheck. You have to join Clear separately, right? Yes. And then how long does the membership last? Um, we have an annual membership 
But what we also offer, again, in the world of great consumer experiences, Netflix, Amazon Prime, there's a free one-month trial where your credit card is never charged because seeing is believing. And you really want – innovation is about bringing people what they did not know they wanted. People do not wake up and say, i got to get myself some biometric security, biometric identity this morning. So there's two parts. Number one is free trials. And number two is adding different nodes to the network. So now you can use your face to drive off the lot at Hertz. Okay, you got me going. You had me at the airport. Okay, we, we got that. What are you doing at Sports Stadium? So sports stadiums, people, you know, 48,000 people come to a baseball game. That looks like an airport from just a volume perspective. And 50% of the population or the fans come within 30 minutes of game time. So when you think about getting fans in efficiently and securely and caring about the customer experience and security, biometrics, your face is your ticket, a a pre-check for for sports stadiums, and then the ability to use it in new places. So we've launched biometric beer with the Mariners and you are your driver's license, you are your credit card at the tap of a finger you get a beer and so having that whole at the tap of, at how, the tap of how, a finger. How, how do they cut you off <laughs> how many how do they know when you've had too many they look back in your eyes biometric drunks we're starting with identity and we'll move <laughs> on from there and so the and and what we've really realized is sports stadiums airports hertz locations buildings they're part of people talk about smart cities they're ecosystems if you're going to LaGuardia, you're also going to a knicks or a concert or a baseball game and so making using biometrics to make things safer and easier in many different areas also helps adoption and it's helped stickiness so people love it at sports stadiums where it's vast lane through and then other we've partnered with major league baseball where your biometrics are your ticket you can use it out at city field it's the same thing as the biometric boarding pass that we have with delta so it's linked to your credit card too it is linked to your credit card because when you enroll in clear you become your wallet you become your driver's license you become your credit card they merge with you and so on your uh, driver's license is your age and so you can use it again age validation payment, ticketing. And so, you know, when you fly with Delta, when you put your fingerprints down, you are your driver's license and your boarding pass. It's the same thing. I see the little clear things at the Delta check and even at their crown, I call it the crown club, their sky club now. That's right. But here's the thing. Have you done the the, the research to show me on those lines at the sports stadiums, how fast the clearance is now? Uh, so what we know is that you get into stadiums with an at less than a five minute average. Usually it's a lot less than that. But what you can do then is have a predictable experience. Leave your office for a 12 o'clock game or, you know, a 12 o'clock Saturday game and get there at No, leave your office for a 12 o'clock Friday game. Maybe they won't miss you. <laughs> but so what it is is about consistency and predictability. Whether there's no line or a long line, it's about consistency and predictability and customer experience for secure entry. Now, if I'm a member of the Hertz Number 1 Club, for example, and I'm part of Clear, what does that do for me in the rental car experience? Ah, so we are at about 9 or 10 Hertz locations now and should double that by end of year. There's a Hertz fast lane out, where as opposed to rolling down your window and showing someone your documents and your driver's license to drive off the lot. And it's that same bank problem that you have at the airport, which is everyone's driving off the lot at 7 a.m. There can be a long line to exit. You look in the camera, a pod, which is Hertz powered by Clear, and your face is your Hertz gold account, and it opens the arm and you drive off the lot. So again, it's that automated secure experience. Okay, now where do you think you're going to expand this? Okay, you already got clear, you got the sports stadiums, you got the airports, right? Yes. Next? Uh, well, we want to continue to drive curb to gate in airports, so biometric bag drop is a really big deal, and again, when you think of eliminating those lines to drop your bag, you put your fingerprints down at a pod, put out your bag tag, put it on and have your bag screened. That's something that we uh, have piloted in Minneapolis, and we think there's big opportunities there, so when you think of that curb to gate, you think of biometric payment and age validation in the concessions area post uh 
security at airports. You should not have to take out your wallet in airports. So more airports, curb to gate in airports, sports stadiums, entry to seat. Uh, we think that there's more opportunities when you think about building access, right? I, I came in here today without my driver's license, so how do you get in? You, you I, had to know somebody. That would be me. <laughs> I used my global entry card, actually, <laughs> right? But why are we walking around with all these cards in our wallets? We are them. And I think that uh, healthcare is another huge opportunity. I'm, I'm mesmerized by the fact that a plastic ID card with no picture on it, that you get a new one every six months and you can't remember which one it is, represents all of your healthcare, uh, both coverage and, and records. Right. Your, your, your medical crazy. history. Your it's medical crazy. History. Devil's advocate question. I remember when pre-check started, there were no lines. It was great. What about clear? At what point do you reach the point of diminishing returns where there are lines that clear? That's a really important point, and we are very focused on data and how we're doing from a verification per minute per second volume numbers. We are looking at all of our data real time to make sure that we're scaling, adding more pods and people. But in some airports today, we are more than 10% of the volume going through airports on less than 5% of the real estate. And so we do think that it's easy pass and, and, and cash lanes, right? There used to be one easy pass lane and more cash lanes. And we think it's very important that we continue to partner with airports to make sure that we can add lanes, which creates opportunities for the airports. We are partnered with airports, both from a revenue perspective, uh, you know, which is really important that they're monetizing real estate that other ties, otherwise they weren't, and they can use that for other uh, opportunities to improve their airports. But speaking of real estate, I mean, the, the sad fact is we haven't had a new airport in this country since Denver. That was more than 25 years ago. So you're not expanding space. You've just got to deal with the space you've been given. But you've got to use it more efficiently. And what we've proven through studies is that you can lift efficiency through innovation by over 30%. And so I think there's huge opportunities to continue to drive efficiency, security, and throughput. And your biggest challenge? Oh, so many. We have time. Um, so, you know, at first it was proving to people that biometrics were the future. Then it was proving to people that the company, uh, which was bankrupt, could be a sustainable business. And then it was proving to people that you could effectively partner with the government. And I think we've done all of those things, and we're really uh, grateful for our team and the partnership. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Uh, joining me now is the president and CEO of CLIA. stands for the Cruise Lines International Association, Kelly Craighead. Kelly, the cruise industry has a role to play in, in these meetings as well, simply because you've had such unprecedented growth in, in the last, what, three years. Absolutely. Well, first, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be part of IPW in part because, uh, you know, the U.S. has been uh, a, a great market for the cruise industry. We have enjoyed unprecedented growth, but the industry is still really pretty small. So last year, 28.5 million people took a cruise. This year, we expect 30 million will take a cruise. That spend is about $140 billion a year, and so there's just huge um, potential to do even more in the impact for destinations that we travel to, for our passengers, and the people and the destinations we visit is huge. If I go back, what, 10 years ago, there might have been 500 ports, maybe 500, that your ships called upon all around the world. 
now it's over what, 1,200? Yes, it's uh, over 1,200. And what's been exciting about the industry is that it's growing in all market segments. And in fact, for millennials, there's huge appetite for cruising. And you see that in the ships that are coming online uh, with 118 ships expected between now and 2027 with a huge kind of swing between the size. So many smaller ships that are going to newer destinations and bigger ships that are going to some of the tried and true marquee lands. lands. And, and what's interesting to me in the hotel business, uh, I talked about this earlier with Roger, you see major brand retail operations now coming up with their own brand of hotels. Shinola, Restoration hardware, Equinox, uh, Nobu, uh, and, and the list goes on. It's now happening in the cruise industry. You have Virgin and you have Ritz-Carlton, and, and neither of which had a cruise line before. That's right. So not only are there new entrants into the market, which I think will really just grow the size of the pie since there's so much um, opportunity, even within ships themselves, there are new and different brands. So I was recently on the Celebrity Edge. They have a, an entire concierge floor that is a club within the ship. Oh, that and was the so, floor they wouldn't let me in. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, it is discerning. They yes. have a discerning oh, Thank clientele. you so much. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. No, but when you have those kind of brands... Um, and they're trying to, I mean, look, Virgin is not going after the world cruise market. They're going after a much younger demo. Well, uh, I, I had the great fortune to be with Sir Richard Branson recently. They're going for a young at heart clientele. And so they really do have a theory of change around kind of what they can bring to the cruise market that does appeal to a younger audience, to be sure. They'll have tattoo parlors, and just a host of ideas. Wait, stop right there. Tattoo parlors? Absolutely. So they think 25%. I was drunk on a cruise. I didn't know. <laughs> so 25% apparently of people have tattoos, so they really recognize it as a as an, an area of interest for their passengers. And so that'll I be bet one they, of their I, unique I bet offerings. they're going to make you sign a waiver. Are you completely sure that you're not drunk when you're signing? Unbelievable. Okay. Well, you know. What happens on a cruise ship stays on a cruise ship. Apparently it does. And then Ritz-Carlton going for a different demo altogether. Right. So you really do see um, the luxury vertical expanding in quite dramatic ways. I think as travelers are becoming more interested in experiences, you know, whether it's a brand like Azamara or like Ritz-Carlton, where they do offer the opportunity to take a cruise, but also to get off and stay on shore uh, for a day or multiple days really just demonstrates the variety of offerings that well, are coming call me, online. Call me old school. I'm a big fan of days at sea. I'm a big fan of days in port. I'm not a big fan of seven ports in seven days. Well, here's the great news. What I've learned since taking this position in January is there is a cruise for everybody. So if you are somebody who enjoys long leisurely days at sea, there's an itinerary for you. If you like the convenience of being able to be efficient in your travel, see multiple destinations in one trip, but only unpack one time, there's an option for you. So young, old, long cruises, short cruises, near destinations, far destinations, there's a product. But in order for the cruise lines to change their, their model, if you will, for spending more time in ports, that's been their real challenge because the ports want them out. You know, those, those ports want turnaround, they want turnaround, they want turnaround. And the ships thought in the old model want to turn around too because they made money at sea. They didn't make money in the port. Right. Well, I mean, I think you're seeing a real evolution in both ports and in cruise ships. 
and there are several ports that want to be developed and are looking to attract cruise ships and where we're working in partnership with ports to really have a quick turnaround. Talking to Kelly Craighead, uh, the CEO and president of Cruise Lines International. How many different companies do you represent? We have over 50 global cruise lines. Um, our membership, though, is much broader than the cruise lines. We also work, uh, we have marketing affiliates with riverboats. We have um, tens of thousands of travel agents and hundreds of suppliers, so shipyards, ship, uh, shipbuilders, ports, destinations, so really the whole ecosystem of cruise. You know, you mentioned river cruises. They've had an explosive growth. I mean, unbelievable so. Right? The only thing that's, that's limiting them is water levels on some rivers. Right. But that is, you know, I think last year was an extreme year. Um, it's an amazing product that is um, kind of just exploding. You're exactly right. But the water levels is a challenge um, for how they're driving the meeting the demand. Uh, given given just the unpredictability of that. I'm, I'm interesting to see the challenges in that particular part of the business because at a certain point they're going to run out of rivers and at a certain point they're going to run out of places they can dock because in the old days, in the old days with the river cruises maybe six years ago, you know, you'd open a small little landing in a small little town in Germany and you were it with only 118 passengers and you just walked off and walked around the town and saw things and, and interacted with the people. On many of those routes today when you pull up to that small landing you're now lashed to five other ships because they're all there at the same time. Right, that's true. But I do think um, you're seeing a lot of innovation, just like in ocean-going vessels. We're seeing it in riverboats. Um, lots of exploration around different forms of power, um, some being battery-powered and that are being invested in and, and um, sought oh, well, after. We're talking about hybrids? Yeah. Really? Yes, absolutely. And so I do think that's going to create more opportunities. I'm not, I don't think we'll run out of rivers. I think across the travel and tourism landscape, we have to expand the destination offerings. I think with some of these kind of innovative new river um, boats, they will be in a much kind of better position to explore new rivers and, and to really kind of continue growing outside of those most impacted areas. I'm thinking that maybe they're just going to have to redefine the seasons because I'm a big fan of like getting rid of seasonality altogether. I don't mind you know doing the, the Volga in December because right. you get a chance to see the country. Right. I agree. I mean, I do think that there is a benefit to changing the seasons and to kind of increasing awareness. You know, I, I grew up in California. Travel to the Caribbean is a, a big destination for us. But I'm equally excited about seeing the Christmas markets in winter, which is not a prime season for U.S. travelers. And so I do think you have a great point about changing the seasons and for us to expand the offerings. I'm getting to the point where I'm thinking that the old days of repositioning cruises, where they had to move the ship to chase the season, is going to start diminishing. They can keep ships in certain markets as long as they can expand the season. I think you're right about that. And I do think that there is a... a Although I should tell you, I like nothing better than a repositioning I was just going to say, there is just a host of people who, who seek out repositioning. And, so and for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about... A repositioning cruise can be as long as 45 days. Yes. I, I, mean, I saw a trip last year from Barcelona to uh, New Orleans. Uh, that was, I think, 39 days on, on Carnival. And, that mean, and of those 39 days, 31 of those days, you were at sea. Yep, absolutely. How great is that? <laughs> well, Nobody able to, say, to find you. My, in my family, the biggest cruise lover is my Aunt Susan, who loves nothing more than a repositioning cruise, who literally took a cruise from Sydney to L.A. It, 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 I th think it was 45 days itself. She had an amazing time. And, of course, there's freighter cruising, which you guys don't really get involved in that much. No. Mm -hmm. But that's another way to go, bring a lot of books. But 
Uh, no, well, you're not gonna, there's no Broadway show tunes that night unless you're singing. Well, no one wants to hear that. As, well, as I just said, there are no Broadway shows. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can find a good repositioning cruise, the value is unbelievable because yep. we worked it out on that repositioning cruise, that 39-day cruise, the cabin was like $62 a night. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I have to say, one of the things that is so incredible about cruising is the value, which doesn't always mean bargain. It just means your, your, your currency dollar for us goes so much further. I've heard stories of uh, uh, an around-the-world cruise for $110 a day. I mean, that is unbelievable. You could not wake up in Cleveland for $110 You could not. Um, so there really is just great value. So there are terrific bargains if you want. Um, but again, it's just the, it's the variety of the product that has something for everybody. And of your members, how many new ships this year? We have 18 new ships this year. Every shipyard's full. And every shipyard is full. I mean, I think one of the exciting, you know, again, it's important to recognize that it's still a relatively small industry. But if you look at the order books in shipyards alone, um, there's just huge, huge opportunity and upside. And they're saturated now. So you can see that it, there is this growing demand for cruising. And they're building ships of every size and pedigree. And, they're, and it, for us, we've seen a huge growth in the expedition ship category and in the large ships. In the luxury expedition ship category. A absolutely. That's right. Galapagos with butlers. That's <laughs> the only way I'm going. That's it. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Uh, joining me now, a regular on our show. I've known him for so many years. He's always right on the money when it comes to listing, talking, explaining the problems as well as the progress in the aviation industry. He's the head of the Boyd Aviation Group, our friend in Colorado, Mike Boyd. How are you, sir? Good day, sir. I'm doing just great, and you too, I hope. I am. Uh, I want to talk about a little bit of history here and how history may be repeating itself. And I go back to uh, the worst aviation disaster in American history, which is American Airlines Flight 191, 40 years ago, by the way, in Chicago on the Friday of Memorial Day weekend back in 1979. And for those people who don't remember it, it was an American Airlines DC-10 rolling down the runway headed for Los Angeles, full load of passengers, when just after it took off, I mean, literally after the wheels left the ground, the left engine inexplicably literally ripped itself from the wings and flew from the plane the plane became uncontrollable, basically asymmetrical. It almost inverted, crashed into an explosive fireball. Everybody died. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because of some of the parallels that may actually be there in the post-crash investigations of both of the Boeing 737 MAX planes. And let me just give you the preface here, Michael, and then we'll talk about it. In that investigation of the DC-10, they found out that the plane itself was not unsafe. It was the maintenance. And the maintenance was that American Airlines felt they could save four hours per engine change when the planes were brought in for maintenance by using a forklift truck to lift up the engine when the maintenance manual from the manufacturer itself 
said in no uncertain terms, do not use a forklift truck because it might lose pressure. American intentionally ignored it. And in fact, they told the FAA they were going to ignore it. And the FAA didn't do anything about it. And on this particular aircraft, they were performing a left engine change. They had the engine up on the forklift truck. The engine is fastened by four bolts. Two of the bolts were in when the lunch whistle blew. And everybody went to lunch. And during lunch, the forklift lost pressure. The weight of that engine on the two bolts was too much. It broke one of the bolts, bent the other. The guys came back from lunch, put in the remaining two bolts without realizing the damage to the first two. The plane then flies empty to Chicago, then takes on a full load of passengers and fuel, and the rest is history. Uh, now let's, let's move 40 years ahead to the Lion Air crash in Indonesia and the Ethiopian Air crash, the two of the Boeing 737 MAX jets. In the DC-10 case, there was intense lobbying by the manufacturer and by the airlines involved. I'll explain what I mean by airlines involved, not to ground that plane. And the FAA had to be dragged kicking and screaming into finally grounding the plane, but for all the wrong reasons. Here in the Boeing 737, what do we see? Intense lobbying by the manufacturer, by the airlines involved, getting what? At the FAA to please not ground the plane. And in fact, the FAA was the last agency around the world to ground the plane. Are there parallels? What do you think, Mike? Well, I think we need to be careful here. One was sloppy maintenance just to save money. Uh, and in this case, there are a lot of other things going on here. Keep in mind, people who I trust, the Allied Pilots Association, Southwest Airlines Pilots Association and ALPA, they all said this airplane could be flown safely. I would take that to the bank. There's other things that we've missed here. Keep in mind that Ethiopian airplane had only a single pilot in the cockpit. The co-pilot was effectively a seat warmer with 200 hours in type. Shouldn't have been there. So there's a lot of things there, but your point of the FAA letting things go, that should not be ignored, Peter. This has happened for years, and many people in the FAA have become possibly too close to the manufacturers, too close to the airlines. And we got to be – I've had experience with that, with the FAA, you know, maybe not wanting to – you know, they find something wrong and maybe saying, I don't want to, you know, implicate myself in letting it happen. So your point should not be ignored regardless of any other facts in the matter. Well, you know, it's one thing – I'll give you a for instance. It's just a hypothetical. But let's say I'm holding a pen with two fingers. And for whatever reason, we don't know why, the pen drops from my hand and there's an accident. Now we investigate. What was the probable cause? And we don't know. That's fair enough. That's what the NTSB does. They do incredible work under incredible odds and conditions to come up with the probable cause. But in many cases, what the NTSB does is they not only give you the probable cause, they can tell you the solution. And in many cases, that solution can be implemented. So in the case of my pen... We investigate, and what we find out is that you really need to hold the pen with three fingers. So we report the reason for the crash was it was only being held by two fingers, and we need to do three fingers. Well, if the federal pen agency, which is the agency regarding safety of pens, hears that information and, and, and knows that the third finger is available, no pun intended, uh, and then chooses to not make that rule, that, in my mind, borders on criminal negligence. They know the problem. They know the solution. 
and they make a conscious choice to side with economic impact on pen manufacturers as opposed to the ink, let's say. That, that, that is not necessarily invalid, I don't think. But I, I wonder if it's as clear as that. You know, you, you get a situation where they look and make a determination. In this case, for example, like I said, people who I trust, these airlines pilots unions, which are not toadies for the company, when they say the airplane could be flown safely, I will take it with that. And keep in mind with Lion Air, that's an airline that has major safety background problems. And like I said, Ethiopian had unqualified cockpit crew in it. So right. it's more than just what you brought up. But, but we shouldn't let those factors I just mentioned smokescreen the situation where maybe, not maybe, where the FAA may be not showing the kind of oversight it needs to. It, it, it's there. I know it's there. There are a lot of good people in the FAA. People, sure. Very good people. Very often the people put in at the top are incompetence and shouldn't be there. Uh, we found that out at 9-11. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is there pressure to let it go? And also, they're dealing with engineers who they trust. And right. it, it, goes, uh, it gets very, very foggy here. So I, I think it's a situation that no matter what the causes or whatever these two crashes, we're going to be better off because all the things you brought up, you know, they have not been missed by by other people. They have not been missed by Boeing, have not been missed by the FAA. So it will be better going forward. I, this is not going to be something that's going to be just an accident. We just let go. Oh, I, I agree with you on that. Uh, look, the 737 itself is a 50-year-old airframe. It's proven itself. It's the most reliable, most widely used jet in the air today. I, I, don't, I fly it all the time. I think what the pilots are saying is that, yes, you can fly this plane. It just has a really bad flight, maintenance, uh, flight management system that has to be fixed. In the process, though, of the intense lobbying to the FAA not to ground the plane and the intense lobbying by Boeing to say the plane is totally safe, what they've done in the process through their I – I have no other words to use other than arrogance – is to create a situation where now the brand needs serious rehabilitation because the most, the most recent surveys uh, that, that I, by the way, believe are saying that an overwhelming majority of passengers say they don't want to fly the plane now. And, yeah, and I think a lot of that, you're so right. You're on the money. Yeah, and, the, and money. the thing is, it's a totally flyable plane. I'd get on it tomorrow as long as that flight management system is fixed. However, nobody wants to fix it fast. Um, the FAA has some serious credibility problems, not to mention some trust problems now. Other government agencies are saying publicly that they're not going to depend on the FAA to say that the plane's been recertified. They want to do it themselves. And what that means, of course, is for every airline that tells you this plane is going to be flying by summer, I think they're delusional. I think politically so. And the other thing is there's a lot of very bad reporting on this. The Denver Post and others came out with a report that said that uh, uh, Boeing had warned airlines that the MAX, they couldn't fly in certain airports, making it look like it's a dangerous airplane. They were referring to a, to a trade dispute where Boeing came out and said, the 700 can fly places the 800 can't, because it's a shorter, smaller airplane, like right. Daochung, China, where it's 14,000. But they reported as if the reason was there was a safety problem with it. And that was in the Denver Post, which I wouldn't line a birdcage with. But that kind of reporting does it does does factor in here, and it Boeing has to deal with that, and I don't think they have. No, they haven't. They've not gotten ahead of the story. Uh, look, there is a certain sense of piling on here, but at the same time, I think that Boeing brought that upon itself by not realizing the extent of the optics here. Mike, as we're talking about brand rehab here, 
no no shortage of connotations about what that means for the 737. As we're talking, you and I both know that Boeing is in their crisis management fo- mode now, trying to figure out, okay, assuming we get certified or recertified, and I think that's going to happen, assuming that happens, who's going to be the first public figure to fly the plane? So I'm sure they're going to have airline CEOs fly it. I'm sure they're going to try to get some celebrities to fly it. I get that. At the same time, you have President Trump tweeting that maybe Boeing should change the name of the plane, which I think is absurd because that would mean that they have something to hide. Uh, What do you think is going to happen? No, I I really don't think it's absurd. I mean, this is not a Tylenol thing. I think what you do is you make some major changes to the airplane. It's something and call it the Ultra but get the name Max out of it, because that has been badly besmirched over the years. And just say, look, we brought this airplane out, and we've done other things to it, demonstrable things to it, and say this is a, a next-generation airplane. But keep in mind, you brought it up. This is a 50-year-old airplane in terms of design. I mean, the, the first 737-100 in this airplane are, you know, eons apart. But the fact of the matter is uh, it, it's an airplane. The tube was designed in the 1950s for the Boeing 707. So it is proven, but the point is, I think the name Max should be retired pretty damn quickly because it does have a bad connotation. Now, Tylenol got away with it. I don't know, maybe Boeing can too. Well, Tylenol got away with it because the chairman of Tylenol really got ahead of the story and did all the proactive things you need to do when confronted with tampering. Boeing didn't. Yes. And so I don't think you recover so from true. that once it happens. I think you're right. You may have to change part of the name, but you're not going to call it like better than Max or Max Plus. <laughs> uh, what are you going to call it? Because it'll be it'll be the source of late night comedians jokes for a while, um, as bad taste as that may seem. And the, the public needs to feel confident enough that they can fly it. And I say this, by the way, having already said I would get on that plane tomorrow as long as they fix the management system of the, of the plane, because the plane itself, when you think about it, has the same flight management system, basically, that the other models have as well. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of, been a lot of confusing reporting about it. And again, like I said, if Allied Pilots Association and American says the airplane is safe, I'm getting on it. But the problem is in the rest of the world we have issues, and now we have political issues. I mean, China's, you know, you know, stretching its muscle to say, look at this, we, we shut it down. I, I think overall the bottom line of it is once they get this thing fixed uh, and uh, addressed, we kind of put it behind us. We don't keep bringing it up. We put it behind us and move on. But I, I'm not so sure that it might not be a good idea to do something else to the airplane. I mean, I don't know whatever ever it is, some design change on it. I have, a, I have other, a wonderful improvements. I have a wonderful design change for the plane. It has nothing to do with safety. <laughs> it is, have you been in the lavatory of a 737 MAX? There, there, uh, yes, and I brought my acrobat suit, and it worked fine. <laughs> I'm telling you, it is physically, I'm not making this up. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not having fun with this. I'm telling you a fact. It is physically impossible, unless, as Michael suggests, you're a member of the cast of Cirque du Soleil, for you to go in that lavatory and actually wash both hands in the sink at the same time. Well, the sink's at least three inches wide, Peter, something like that. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean, no, it, no it, it, it really is. And I think this is one of the things airlines have forgotten, and they've all for, not all forgotten it, but, you know, it's like the president of United said, but the, literally he said, quote, our passengers are pissed when they sit down. Well, Oscar, there's a reason for that, okay? <laughs> and it's not just the airport and the baggage claim area. 
By so the way, Mike, I got to tell you this. That, you know. You're going to love this story. Scott McCartney, our good friend who's also on the show a lot from the Wall Street Journal, did a piece. We talked about it on the air where he invited the three CEOs of American, United, and Delta to come out to the airports where they're based and actually fly in coach and tell us what you think about it. And American did it, uh, Delta did it, and United declined. There you go. Yeah, I, you know, I, I again, I, you know, you got to get along with people, and they all say they're trying, but when, when some airlines have a system where literally people are forced or, or implied forced to line up an hour ahead of time at a gate area to get the overhead space, those systems need to be taken away. But that, that's the problem. Airlines, we've got to get our people on airplanes quickly. This is not a cattle barn. Right. Or the well, worst, I might get you, off into it. If, if you can't fly into Denver because of a snowstorm like today or a few days ago, uh, you can change your trip, but you can't refund your ticket. i got a problem. Well, you know, it's interesting. We're at sort of a crisis point now, a threshold moment of definition. Are the airlines in the travel and transportation business or the human cargo business? And until we come up with a satisfactory answer to that question, and hopefully it's not the latter, we're going to have a problem. Well, I think it's been answered now. It is the latter. It's moving people A to B as quickly as we can, rather than getting them to their destination with a smile on their face. That's all that matters. We deal with airport design. We tell people the airport that's good is the one you don't remember. And that, that, that's a really good airport, you know. So same thing with air travel. I love that line. I'm writing that line down. The airport that's good is the one you won't remember. Talk about branding. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.